This is AQR's The Curious Investor, a show that breaks down some of the most important ideas in finance to help us make better investment decisions. I'm Gabe Fagali. And I'm Dan Villalon. We're joined today by our returning champion, Toby Moskowitz. Toby is a professor at Yale, a principal here at AQR, and one of our favorite guys to go to for insights into randomness, or even for things that just seem random. If you've ever used the shuffle feature on your smartphone, it's supposed to select songs randomly, right? Well, it turns out that used to be the case when they first uh, put in those products. But the problem is people complain because randomness means sometimes the same song will get selected twice or even three times. And people complained like crazy when that happened. So now what these apps do is they actually don't use a random function. They use something that looks random to humans, which is it's very unlikely to select the same song twice. So that shuffle feature is not really a random feature. It's a seemingly random feature. It seems like everywhere Toby looks, he finds these interesting human biases. And today we're going to talk about how some surprisingly common biases can lead to some pretty bad decisions in sports, life, and of course, investing. You ever play in a basketball game or just shoot around by yourself and get this funny feeling like you just can't miss? Reverse layup, in. Jumper from the foul line, swish. Huh. You're pretty sure you're not actually this good. Three-pointer from the corner, one-legged shot off the glass, all in. Well, what is happening? You, my friend, are on a hot streak, and you know there is zero chance you are missing the next few shots. Well, Gabe, what if I told you that this feeling is just you being fooled by randomness? Turns out that if a player does hit a couple shots in a row, they're no more or less likely to hit their next shot than before. Nobody believes that result, but uh, I can't find any evidence for it in the data. Toby teaches a sports analytics course at Yale. He also wrote a book with John Wertheim called Scorecasting, the hidden influences behind how sports are played and games are won. So logic is on Toby's side here. Still, I had a really tough time believing him that there's no such thing as a hot hand in basketball. You know, suppose I flip a coin, right? Um, I expect to get about half heads and half tails, but it's very possible by pure randomness I'll get five heads in a row, right? No, that's, that's just luck. So if you think about basketball shooting that way, now people don't because they don't think of it as random, but, you know, if you're a, let's say you're a 40% shooter from the field, that doesn't mean every 10 shots you hit four out of 10. Sometimes you'll hit eight out of 10. Sometimes you'll hit two out of 10. And the problem is, is we want to ascribe some pattern to it. So when a player goes 10 for 10 in one game, we think they've got something special going on. When they go 0 for 10 the next game, um, we think the opposite. That could just be random dumb luck. And random dumb luck isn't a natural way of thinking. As human beings, we like to make order of things. We like to look for patterns and attribute some reason for them. Accepting randomness is pretty hard. So how do you go about disproving the hot hand myth? Gilovich, Valone, and Tversky worked on this problem in the early 80s by actually testing basketball players. Probably the nicest experiment they did is they were at Cornell at the time. They took the Cornell men's and women's varsity basketball teams and had them shoot from the same spot on the floor. So there's no defense. All the other confounding factors are wiped out and recorded their makes and misses and tested for whether any, and there was any predictive value in those streaks. And the answer was no. The basketball fan in me 
made it really hard to get my head around this at first. But unfortunately, the data is there. And if you're still skeptical or want to learn more, we put up some of these studies on our website at aqr.com curious. Gabe, you're not alone here. Even with all this data, most basketball fans still believe in the hot hand. Even the players in the study that Toby mentioned would confidently say when they felt hot, but that had no impact whatsoever on how much better they would actually shoot. For a lot of people, the evidence is just hard to accept. Amos Tversky had one of the most famous lines. He was one of the authors on the original study, uh, which is, I've been in this argument a thousand times, won them all, and convinced nobody. And all of this hot hand stuff, it directly translates to investor behavior. One of the things that you see is we're always trying to infer skill of, say, money managers. And so what you find in, in the investing space is people chase returns. And they chase returns far too strongly than they should. Um, and the reason why is because they don't give enough um, subscription to randomness, right? If you realize that, wow, the best managers last year probably got more lucky than they were good, they're probably good, but they're probably not nearly as good as we think they are based on their performance. But we don't act like that. We act as if they're that much better than everybody else. And so people flow into those funds. It's tough because so many investors believe performance is indicative of skill. So if a manager has outperformed recently, it should be because that manager has skill. The problem, though, is that this idea just isn't supported by the evidence. There's an old study in the journal Finance that shows that SAT scores are a better predictor of a manager's future performance. It's not a good predictor. I, I can't think of anybody who uses SAT scores to make manager decisions. But using past returns is even worse. And this reliance on past returns actually appears in places outside of just manager selection. In stocks, we certainly feel that people chase returns. Uh, and actually, uh, in academics have discovered that one of the things that we find in financial markets because of that return-chasing behavior is a phenomenon called momentum. We talked about momentum in episode two. It's the idea that stocks that have done relatively well continue to do well, and stocks that have done relatively poorly continue to do poorly. And part of that phenomenon is because people are chasing returns. Now, that in a sense causes a little bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If we all start buying the stocks that have done well recently, we drive up their price, causing them to do a little bit better for a little bit longer than they should. And same on the downside, if we start selling stocks that have done poorly because we're chasing returns, that creates you know what we call negative momentum on the downside. What's unique about financial markets, of course, is that our behavior can affect prices. In sports contests, whether we believe in the hot hand or not doesn't affect the way players on the court are shooting. Another common misconception that relates to both the investing world and the sports world is something called the gambler's fallacy, which is almost the opposite of the hot hand fallacy. Let's say I flip a coin five times and I get five heads in a row. People's natural tendency is to think that the next one's got to be more likely to be tails. And the reason why is they're thinking it's got to balance out. If I keep flipping this coin, I got to get about five tails if I had five heads. Since I've already had five heads, it's natural to think I'm going to get more tails. And of course, that's wrong. It's completely random. They're completely independent. This is the common fallacy at slot machines, too, by the way. Sitting by a slot machine that hasn't paid out in a long time thinking it's due to pay out is wrong. We've covered two biases so far. The hot hand is thinking there's something more to streaks in random data. The gambler's fallacy is about thinking that past results will somehow affect future ones, 
Like if I flip nine heads in a row, the next one has to be tails. Now this raises a question. If you know you're dealing with a random process, like say the lottery, and people have these biases, what can you do to get a leg up? So that's, an, that's another great example. If you're playing Powerball, I think you pick whatever, six numbers, something like that. No one ever picks one, two, three, four, five, six, right? Because they think the chances of that occurring are astronomical. But the truth is they're just as astronomical as picking eight, seven, five, four, two, right? They're equally unlikely. They're, they're both random sequences. Playing the Powerball is not a good investment strategy, let's be honest. Um, if you're going to play, though... You're better off picking uh, a sequence of numbers that no one else will pick, something like one, two, three, four, five, six, because you're much less likely to share the pot with any other winners. Of course, the problem is then everybody would think it was fixed if that turned up because they don't understand randomness, but that's (laughs) another story. So let's say you actually did win the lotto. You just won a million dollars. How happy are you? Now let's say I take that million dollars away. How unhappy are you? This brings us to the topic of loss aversion, something we talked about a bit in episode one. One of the famous experiments on this is uh, you walk into a room and I say, all right, Dan, I'm going to flip a coin. If it lands heads, I'll give you a hundred bucks. That's one gamble. Next time you walk in the room, suppose I give you the hundred dollars first and say, all right, Dan, I'm going to flip the coin. If it lands tails, you got to give it back to me. You hate the second gamble more than the first, even though they're exactly the same. You didn't have the hundred dollars before you stepped into the room. But in one scenario, I turn it into a gain and the other a loss. And the loss just feels worse. It kind of sounds crazy, but there's a lot of research to show that humans hate losses about twice as much as they enjoy gains. This loss aversion can really affect our decision-making. But consider the case of American football, where coaches don't go for it on fourth nearly enough. And this happens in high school, in college, and even in the pros. For those who don't watch football, here's the gist. You get four tries, which are called downs, to advance the ball 10 yards. And let's say you haven't advanced the ball enough and you're on your last down. You're now faced with a choice. Do you go for it or do you punt? Punting is a low-risk choice. And Gabe, what you're saying is that coaches choose the low-risk option more often than they should. Right. And Toby can back this claim up with a ton of data. Well, you figure out what's the value of field position based on all plays that have happened in football for the last 30 years. Crunch all those numbers. And it turns out that if you identify all the situations where at least statistically it's valuable to go for it rather than kick, coaches in the NFL go for it almost none of the time. In fact, overwhelmingly about 96% of the time uh, in cases where they should go for it, they choose not to. 96%. I mean, we were pretty floored when we heard that. Like, how is nobody realizing this and doing something about it? Well, there is this one guy. I think the most interesting case study of this is a coach in Little Rock, Arkansas, a guy named Kevin Kelly that we wrote about in our book, Scorecasting. He's really interesting. He coaches Pulaski Academy. Uh, It's a small parochial school in Little Rock. And uh, they don't even have a kicker on the team. Not only does he not punt when it's statistically, he just never punts, period. He doesn't even have a punter on the team. 
if a kid comes out for the team and says, I want to kick field goals or punt, there's just no position for them. <laughs> Go play soccer. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's amazing. And the reason why it sounds insane, he sounds like a mad scientist, but it's backed up by tons of numbers. He has all these numbers from high school sports, and he shows that, first of all, kickers in high school are just not that good. Secondly, on most kicks, it's likely to result in a penalty or a turnover or some bad thing for his team. And what you really want is to maximize the number of offensive plays. So he'll go for it on fourth and 10 at his own two-yard line. Gabe, we should really get this guy on the show. My name is Kevin Kelly. I'm the head football coach and athletic director at Pulaski Academy High School in Little Rock, Arkansas. Coach Kevin Kelly, the mad scientist Toby describes, has laughed in the face of conventional football wisdom since he took over as head coach in 2003. Maybe you can kind of walk us through the successes here. So what, what has been your record since you've taken over? Um, 179 and 25. And how many state titles? We have seven. And seven out of the past 15 years, yeah. Pulaski Academy has actually won so much that they had to move up a few leagues to find competitive games. I think we're averaging like 550 yards a game on offense, and that's in a 48-minute <laughs> game, and we're averaging over 50 points a game. Coach Kelly has a lot of unconventional practices, but his thought process is always driven by data. 81% of all games in college football were won last year by teams that have more plays over 20 yards than the other team. So our offense is engineered much more towards that. We throw more intermediate passes than anybody probably in the game at any level. And Coach Kelly isn't just trying random things. These unconventional tactics actually work. There's a lot of ways that people go about trying to be different. And there's good different, there's bad different, there's different just for the heck of it. And similar to a good investment manager, he has a process that's repeatable. Like a good factor, which we talked about in episode two, his process is backed by intuition. When you dig into the analytics of something, you can't take the numbers necessarily at face value. I want to know the whys behind them. Sometimes when something doesn't work for you, it doesn't mean it's not a good philosophy or good theory. It just means you might be going about it the wrong way. So that's why I want to know I want to know why this would be better before I try to implement it. The real question is, given all his success, why aren't other coaches doing this? They would rather lose traditionally than take a chance on getting it closer or winning untraditionally. The media was the reason I almost didn't do it was because I feared <laughs> I feared if what happens if we do this and it doesn't work, it's going to be a media nightmare for me. Of course, this happens all the time in investing, too. Basically, in any business venture, losing conventionally is tolerated. Losing unconventionally is not. So as an investor, um, and you know, you can see this all the time with institutional boards and other investment uh, organizations, if you're going to deviate from what your peers are doing, right, you better be right. I mean, in fact, the old adage was, you know, you could buy Apple, and if it tanks, you're not going to get fired for that. But if you buy the obscure company that nobody's heard of, and it happens to go south, people now think you don't know what you're doing. And the fact of the matter is, there's a difference between good investments and good companies, right? And the good investments are the hard things to find. It feels like investors, coaches, and leaders in general that try to innovate have serious hurdles to overcome. It also means that they may be the only ones doing something unique for a long time. But that is okay with Coach Kelly. And, and let's get this straight. I don't want anybody else doing it. 
I don't try to get other coaches to do this because I've got an advantage, I feel like, and I don't want them doing it. Let's cover some takeaways here. Okay, first, remember the hot hand fallacy, both in basketball and in investing. Just because a manager is outperformed or underperformed doesn't tell you much about what's going to happen next. Second is that loss aversion is a real thing. So be aware of it because there are serious benefits to overcoming it. But you'll need Coach Kelly-like gumption to pull it off. And last, don't play the lottery. And if you do, don't play one, two, three, four, five, six, because you'll be splitting the pot with me. If you want to learn more about what we covered today, head to the Curious Investor page at aqr.com curious. You can also send us an email at curious at aqr.com. Next week, we're taking a look at superstar investors. We'll break down some of the most famous track records in investing and try to figure out just how they did it. Do they have clairvoyance about the move in certain security prices? Do they have a philosophy that they stick through through good times and bad? Are they able to time the market? Thanks for listening to The Curious Investor. I'm Gabe Figali. And I'm Dan Villalon. Until next time, don't let conventional wisdom fool you. The views expressed in this recording are the personal views of the participants as of the date indicated and do not necessarily reflect the views of AQR itself. Nothing contained in this recording constitutes investment, legal, tax, or other advice, and it should not be viewed as a current or past recommendation or a solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or to adopt any investment strategy. The information in this recording is based on current market conditions, which will fluctuate and may be superseded by subsequent market events or for other reasons. AQR does not assume any duty to update forward-looking statements. The information in this recording has been developed internally and or obtained by sources believed to be reliable. However, no representation or warranty, express or implied, is made or given by or on behalf of AQR as to the accuracy and completeness or fairness of the information contained in this recording. Any liability as a result of this recording, including any direct, indirect, special, or consequential loss or damage is expressly disclaimed. Copyright 2018, AQR Capital Management, LLC. All rights reserved. How we resolve disputes is my wife and I have our kids play rock, paper, scissors. My daughter is the youngest, and she wins every time. And the reason is, is she's very good at being random. So my 14-year-old will outthink himself. Well, I threw rock last time. This time I better throw scissors because she's, she's not thinking at all. She just throws out stuff randomly, beats the boys every time.